Thanks for joining us on Battle Walks as we walk across the great battlefields of Europe. If you're enjoying the show, why not become a member? Every week, you'll receive exclusive bonus episodes available only to subscribers, and you can listen to all our episodes completely ad-free. Click on the link in the show notes to join us via ACAST+. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, it's Matt McLaughlin. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Battle Walks. A bit of a special episode this week. We're not going to be walking the battlefields. We're going to be talking about machine guns. And the reason for this is that we've done lots of podcasts where we've talked about the importance of machine guns and Pete and I decided, well, why don't we break the topic down a little bit more, explain exactly why machine guns were so important during the First World War. So this episode was originally only available to subscribers, but now we're releasing it to everyone and we hope you enjoy it. A special episode to talk all about machine guns. Don't forget, Battlefield Touring is now back. In 2022, you can join us on the battlefields. You can walk the Western Front. You can go to Gallipoli. You can trek Kokoda. There's a whole range of tours now available. So if you're an Australian, visit our website at battlefields.com.au. And if you're in the UK, visit our website at battlewalks.co.uk and find out about all the tours you can take there. Some of them led by me, many of them led by Pete Smith. But now let's head into this week's episode. Hello and welcome to Battle Walks and the first of our bonus episodes for subscribers. If you're listening to this, it means you've subscribed. Thank you so much. It's really just an opportunity for Pete and I to add a bit more interesting detail to the podcasts we do every week. So the podcasts will remain free every week. You'll be able to download an episode of Battle Walks and join us as we virtually walk the battlefields. But this is something a little bit extra. And and Pete, as we've said before, the podcast really is you and I sitting in a pub just chatting about about walking the battlefields. And this is an opportunity to get even a little bit more uh, interesting and specific about things to do with the battlefields. How are you, mate? I'm fine, thank you very much. And I was just kind of thinking about this. Would it be better if we actually did both have a, a glass of beer in our hands? That would be really cool. That would actually be really cool, except that it's about six o'clock in the morning here in Sydney. And uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm a, I'm a good drinker, but even that would might be a beer. Breakfast beers might be a step too far. But, mate, I'm really looking forward to this. It's going to be good because we talked about this and we, we've had a lot of requests from people for more episodes or can you talk a little bit more about X, Y, or Z topic? And this gives us the opportunity to do it. And, and uh, you know, we've had some great discussions about it, mate, that we want to we want to add to the general knowledge and still keep it very interesting, of course. But it's just a great opportunity, these, um, these bonus episodes, to talk about some specific elements of the Great War that we probably wouldn't do during the regular podcast. 
Yeah, this this is kind of, uh, I suppose, is the type of thing that we would actually literally talk about in the bar after a tour, a hard day's touring, and uh, you get a, a nice cold beer, and you're sitting down talking, and it, and it doesn't stop. You just go on to kind of more general topics and, and, and have a good old natter about them. So it's just a, a continuation of that, really. I'm really looking forward to it. I mean, I love doing battle walks and walking the ground, but I'm, I'm looking forward to this as well because it is a chance. You know, there's no notes in front of me. I'm just We're just going to sit here and we're just going to talk about a specific topic and just see where it leads us. So I'm really looking forward to it. So today we're going to do machine guns, which we've talked about a lot when we do the podcast. Every time we talk about a battlefield, we talk about there was a German machine gun placed over here or the importance of machine guns or someone earned themselves a Victoria Cross for capturing a machine gun post. And they're such an important weapon during the First World War that I thought it was important that we kick off with this one and and hopefully shed a bit more light on their use, on the experience of the men fighting against them, both on both sides, using machine guns and fighting against them, and also our personal experiences with with having come across machine guns or stories of machine guns during the war. So let's kick off, mate. Let's talk about, well, when we say machine guns, what, what types of weapons are we talking about during the First World War? Well, um... When we think of our machine gun, so let's think of our machine gun, then there's two versions we're going to be looking at. The Vickers machine gun, introduced in 1912 into the British Army, uh, or the Lewis gun, which will be introduced during the war and really comes uh, into its own in uh, 1916. So those are, are two two guns that we're going to be using. Uh, the Lewis is light man portable. It's the kind of thing that we'd, uh, you'd sling over your shoulder. Uh, man portable is sometimes in the eye of the beholder. These things are not that light, but they're, they're certainly uh, uh, light enough to, to to actually carry that's the Lewis gun and the Vickers gun is something that has a, a normally has a, a tripod basically that uh, you fire it from that's quite heavy as well uh, and uh, and quite a heavy gun because it's got a water a water jacket as well so two very different guns but both will be very very much used in the first world war and I think what's interesting straight away and I always like chatting about this is the Germans didn't get the light version really sorted out. They had the 0815, which is an attempt to lighten their uh, their Maxim gun, which is uh, very similar to the Vickers gun. In fact, they come from the same stable, both originally designed by Hiram Maxim. And that's perhaps one of the oddities of the war, where both really using the same heavy machine gun. Uh, but they never really got a light machine gun sorted out the Germans. They tried to lighten their uh, their Maxim gun uh, by creating this 0815, but really it's still a flipping heavy gun. I think it's fascinating when we talk about just how, what a technological advance the machine gun was. We're talking the late 19th century here that machine guns were invented. And as you say, by Hiram Maxim invented the Maxim mechanism, which was then also incorporated into the Vickers gun basically turned upside down and used in the Vickers gun and operated yeah, backwards yeah. To, the, to the German version. But what a technological advancement it was. And when we talk about technology in the First World War, everyone talks about the Second World War and technology and how, and, you know, there were huge technological advancements in the Second World War. But you think about the First World War as well, it's just extraordinary. In 1914, very few aircraft on the battlefield, no tanks, machine gun was a very new invention. And then think about what was happening by 1918. It was absolutely extraordinary. But the machine gun... As I said, the late 1800s, it was invented by Hiram Maxim. And I believe there was an anecdote. Uh, I think it was the Prince of Wales said this when it was demonstrated in in uh, England before the war. I believe it was the Prince of Wales that came down to watch it being used. And he said, congratulations, Mr. Maxim. You've uh, you've prevented more young men from reaching old age than any other man in history. It was just a, it was a ferocious weapon. And people couldn't believe it. I mean, bolt-action rifles. You know, repeating rifles had not been around for that long. And all of a sudden, someone came up with a way of a fully automatic machine gun. It was just, 
it would have been, you know, exciting and terrifying in equal measure. Yeah, I agree. And it's interesting, isn't it, that uh, in 1914 they were still uh, teaching soldiers to shoot with individual rounds. So you could put the magazine cut-off across, which acted a bit like a safety, but it also stopped the magazines coming, uh, the, the rounds coming up through the magazine. So you could feed in bullets individually into into the weapon, as, as we had done with the earlier weapons. We still trained. I think it was a good thing. The British Army was trained to shoot uh, individual rounds at targets. So rather than kind of aim a gun over there and keep firing roughly in that direction, you know, every shot was an aimed shot. And it's something that the British Army was very proud of, and hence the Empire's forces as well. Pete, when we look at technology like the tank being introduced, it took a long time for for the Allies to actually work out how to use it, <clears throat> excuse me, effectively on the battlefield. Um, they, there was trial and error, and there was disagreement about how it should be used. In your opinion, was it the same with the machine gun? Did it take the powers that be a while to work out the, the best use of machine guns on the battlefield? Oh, it, I mean, it's, it, it's extraordinary, really, how it changes during the war. In 1914, a battalion only has two machine guns, and these are Vickers machine guns. Uh, as I say, they're quite heavy, but they're used as infantry support weapons. And in fact, they're too heavy for that. They're, they're difficult to get around the battlefield quickly. But that's how they're being used. But there's only two of them. Now, and so that's what they're for. They're, they're a battalion infantry support weapon. Well, by the end of the war, uh, there are, uh, well, there are thousands and thousands of guns being used then. Uh, and they are being used much more like uh, artillery they're being used to, uh, in barrages to support to support the infantry in the attack so a complete change and this is just the vickers i'm talking about and that's taken place because we've developed uh, a lighter weapon so the lewis gun has been has been developed so most people will recognize a lewis because it's got this drum magazine on the top so even if you're not quite sure what it is or what it looks like as soon as i say that this round drum magazine on the top then most people instantly get a, an idea of what what it looks like they'll remember seeing one somewhere well the lewis gun uh that that is what's going to be the game changer really because that is a a truly light machine gun that can support the infantry can be used by the infantry um, in fact there was a larger crew crew of eight eight men uh for a section with the lewis gun but that meant that it was ammunitioned it it was uh, uh controlled in other words somebody was directing the fire somebody was firing it and, and all the different roles that go with that scouting ahead trying to find positions to place it so a real game changer and of course everybody was trained to fire it so even if the number one was taken out then somebody else could take over firing the gun so the, the tactics of the, of the use of the machine gun in the war change constantly and of course that means new manuals there were there were manuals being written it's something we forget about printing and writing new manuals throughout the war so you can buy a manual uh, of, of the uh, that was used at the start of the war and it will be absolutely different to the manual that will be used uh, on how to use machine guns at the end of the war you're right what you say about the germans never perfecting a light machine gun and because of that the lewis gun became a very prized weapon for them to capture as well and when we look at things like the Battle of Dernancourt in March 1918, for example, just after the start of the German Spring Offensive. Um, we note that uh, when Stan McDougall was awarded his Victoria Cross, and we did a, we did a battle walk on Dernancourt, so go and check that out. But when, St- when Stan McDougall was awarded his Victoria Cross for, uh, for capturing and killing a whole bunch of Germans, he did so with a Lewis gun that he picked up from the Germans. And there's been some conjecture as to where that Lewis gun came from, but it now seems fairly likely that the Germans had captured that from a British unit in the early days of their spring offensive. So it's it's fascinating to imagine the Germans advancing 
with an enemy machine gun because they'd require, they'd have to work out how to use it. They'd need to find ammunition for it. Extraordinary that uh, the weapon would be so highly prized that the, the enemy would be using it. It's interesting. We look at the uh, weight of fire. I'm talking about Australians again, as it happens here, because they were so depleted manpower wise. The only way that they could still take part in a battalion attack and be successful was that they were carrying an awful lot of machine guns that compensated for the lack of men. And one of the things that they were also doing was as they overran German uh, uh, units in that 100 days, in that advance to victory, as they overran these uh, German units, they discovered that the Germans were using the the, the, the Lewis guns. And so, uh, as you just said, Matt, they were then incorporating them in the, back into their own battalion. So they probably, at the end of all of these actions, actually had more guns than they should have done. But uh, that didn't matter because they needed them. They needed the extra, extra guns. It's this is potentially a little one of our uh, Matt and Pete's tangents, but it's interesting. It just reminds me of how what a, what difficulty that would have created. One thing we don't think about on the battlefields is the importance of sound, and men get very used to the sound of weapons. They 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 learn the sound of their own weapons. They learn the sound of enemy weapons, and that helps play a lot of direction on the battlefield. That when they hear a German machine gun firing at them, that obviously indicates where the enemy is. If that starts to get swapped around, if if, yeah. if they start using each other's weapons. That can really throw the whole thing out. And I recall um, Gary Mackay, my good friend who's a Vietnam veteran, he tells a story about how they went into action. They, they were ambushed by a, by a Vietnamese patrol. They came under fire, but there was an M60. They recognised from the sound, an M60 kept firing at them, and it took them a long time to work out what was going on. They thought they'd run into another Australian unit who was accidentally firing on them. And it turned out that the Vietnamese had captured an M60 machine gun and was using it against them. And then, of course, when Gary's platoon eventually won the position, they captured the machine gun. Um, and then they, <laughs> without telling anyone that they now had a, a bonus M60, they then took that into, bat- into battle with them as well. So they had three machine guns instead of the standard two. And that was pretty, inf- that was pretty important in the, uh, the upcoming battles that they, they took part in. So, but Gary talks about it. It was, it was baffling that we were getting fired on by a gun that we recognised as an M60, and it just really threw us out. So it would have been the same for the, for the troops during the First World War when Lewis guns opened up on them. It's interesting. I've heard most guns fire over the, over the years uh, in various uh, uh, simulations using blank ammunition and sometimes live uh, ammunition when I was when I was serving still. And in fact, uh, I remember uh, about uh, the middle of my career. So this would be, I suppose, in the mid eighties. Uh, one of the armourer uh, warrant officers, uh, an armourer, looks after all the weaponry. He was leaving. He was being marched uh, off the barracks, and as a thank you, they let him uh, fire an old Vickers gun with blank ammunition down the main drag was his uh, his leaving present it got it out of the museum and that's because uh, during uh, Aden in the in the 1950s he'd actually been a, a Vickers machine gunner there and I think it was the last time was Aden that uh, Vickers machine guns uh, had been used and so as his leaving present this thing was firing down the main drag it was spectacular to watch one uh, firing a prolonged fire um, so yeah the only one I haven't heard fire is the Lewis I've never heard a Lewis gun fire uh, in anger or otherwise now, that's the one I have actually heard fire, the Lewis gun, and it's that distinctive sound because there's yeah. there's some debate as well about whether a Lewis gun was a true machine gun or sometimes it's just referred to as an automatic rifle because it had a very low, a very slow rate of fire. It was real, you could hear every individual round being fired, quite a distinctive sound. And once again on the battlefield, that would have been very easy to pick as you came under fire from the enemy using your own machine guns. It's probably a good segue, Pete, for us to talk about the next section we're going to discuss, which is the experience for the men uh, with machine guns. I'm particularly interested here not so much in machine gunners and how they 
you know, took mm. machine guns into battle, but the experience of coming up against a machine gun, you know, and obviously in the, 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 the huge battles we talk about in the Somme and Passchendaele and, you know, all these battles we talk about where the the Allied armies were advancing and the Germans were in defensive positions. Obviously, machine guns were a cornerstone of the German defensive system. Just talk to us a little bit about that, how the Germans used the machine guns in these great battles. Now, if we're on two, you see, I get, I get all of my clients lined up in a great long line here and I try and explain enfilade fire. Uh, I'm sure we've done this before in a, in a podcast, but it's always worthwhile. Uh, you can never do it too many again. times. You can never talk no, about you can't. No, you can't. It's, well, it's, you know, so, jokes aside, it's such an instrumental yeah, part of what is. life on the battlefield was like. It is, because straight away, the view you have to think about is the the German machine gunner, how is he going to use his gun? Is he going to be swinging it? As we all mentally think about that he's swinging it from left to right, kind of searching out individuals and shooting down rows of men. But that isn't how how they do it for several reasons. One is, if you're swinging around the gun backwards and forwards, it's got a canvas belt that your number two is trying to feed it it, into the machine gun. All it needs is for that belt to twist and it, it jams. So you don't want the gun to be swinging around because the old number two there is having real difficulty in feeding the belt into the gun. So that's one of the reasons. The other reason that you don't want to be swinging it around, because you can imagine as your enemy is coming nearer to you and you have to be across at the left hand side, then over at the right hand side, it's like, it's like a hose. It becomes like a hose pipe trying to hose the, the, the attacking infantry. It just doesn't work. It's, it's just not a good way of using a gun. What most guns are using the enfilade, uh, for enfilade fire, which effectively means you're firing to the flank and you don't have to swing the gun around at all. All you do is you basically keep the gun firing in a fairly, fairly fixed position and you wait for the enemy to walk into your field of fire. It's very often known as a beaten zone. It's where all the bullets are going to hit or fly across. And uh, and your enemy is going to, in this case, the the first of July. It's uh, it's the the British who are trying to get across no man's land, and they're they're walking into these fields of fire, these beaten zones. Now, if you're really clever, you have interlocking fields of fire, interlocking beaten zones, so they're crisscrossing in front of your trenches so that nobody can get through. And, of course, if you do get through, then you've got the individual riflemen who are going to pick off the people that are getting through as well. So if you've got it working well, then it's almost impenetrable. Add the barbed wire to that and then the artillery. It is amazing that anybody got across no man's land at any point during any battle. But they do, of course, and that's because you're getting counter-battery fire and counter-machine gun fire. Um, and those very often keep the heads down of those that are firing if it's if it's accurate. Uh, during the Battle of the Somme, there was a problem with both of those, so it's not going to happen. But... Um, yeah, a, mach- a machine gun being used properly has not been swung around uh, by a maniac. It has been uh, fired very slowly and carefully. And that's the other thing you don't do. You don't put your, you press your finger on the old tick to fire it and it's going off like the, like the clappers. Um, because what would happen is you boil your, dra- your jacket dry because these things are, are water cooled. Um, you wear out the barrel. So it's just firing in small bursts like that, uh, nice and steady, um, and 
For nervous gunners, they would even sometimes take out every kind of fifth or sixth round out of the belt, and that meant the gun stops, and so you have to lean forward and re-cock it, and that will slow down the fire of a nervous gunner because he's got to re-cock all the time. So I suspect they didn't do it in battle. It would probably be used in training to help aid them with training. Another little tip was to make your gun move a little bit more that a gunner would bang his wrist on the or as he's re-cocking, he would just bang the gun a little bit. And just a tiny movement, in other words, just judder it a bit, a little movement would give you another area to fire on. So your gun's not moved a great deal, in other words, where the beaten zone is, but it's just moved it a little bit. And that sometimes would help as well. So they're all little tips that the, uh, that the gunners learned as they, as they were training and in, and in practice. One of the greatest misconceptions I had, Pete, about the First World War before I visited the battlefields was you just can't help but think... Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. The trench lines are straight. You see them on a map and they just, they just look sort of straight. You just imagine two two yep. parallel lines like tracks on a rail facing each other and those are the yep. trenches and if you think about them in that context you think okay well where are the machine guns going to be placed well they have to be placed in the trench firing directly across no man's land but obviously yep. spending even just a few minutes on a battlefield we see that that is not the case the the trench lines curved and doubled back on themselves and there were salients and bends and things and what that always meant is that good machine gun crews could find a spot where they could fire along no man's land rather than yeah. across it. And if we look at a battlefield yeah. like... Uh, the best example is definitely Gallipoli on the second ridge in the Anzac sector because the terrain meant that the lines were absolutely not straight. And then if you walk along that line, you think, well, hang on a minute, I'm actually kind of behind my enemy's trench system here. Oh, now I'm way in front of it as you walk along the line. But you look at things yeah. as well like Fromel with the uh, the Sugarloaf salient. and you know, There's, there's yeah. countless examples. And when you think of a bulge into no man's land, 
what the enemy would then do is they'd set up their machine guns to be able to fire along no man's land to get the, yeah. the perfect uh, type of enfilade fire. I think one of the other things that's, that's, that you need to think about as well, and, and, and I always kind of, when, you, when you're sitting pretending that you're looking through a, a people looking directly out into no man's land, you realise it's not a good thing because anybody that's attacking is looking directly forward when they're attacking. And so if you're firing at them from directly in front, they can A, see your flash as your gun goes off because if they're looking forward, um, and they'll know where you are. But if you're firing from a flank then generally speaking, an attacking infantryman, as he's moving directly forward, he's not looking to his right or his left. He is looking directly in the, in the, uh, the, the, the direction of travel, so where he's, where he's heading. And so fire from the flank tends to catch you because you're not looking at it. You don't see it. You cannot fire back at it. So enfilade fire is also good for that because men did, were not trained. And why would they be to look left or right as they're advancing to look for people that are shooting them from the sides? But that's in effect is where it's going to come from. There's a very good video I've seen on YouTube of a, um, a UK team demonstrating the effectiveness of machine guns in the First World War. And uh, they have a Vickers gun, which they're firing live rounds through, but they do it with balloons. They set up a field of balloons, and I'm sure you've seen it, Pete. And they they yeah, shoot yeah. at the balloons from front on, and they so they make it a platoon, I think, or a company, 250 balloons, and they count how many balloons they can hit by firing a belt from front on, uh, which is still a lot. A lot of men would fall. The balloons, obviously, re- representing men marching across no man's land. But then they set it up in enfilade. They set all the balloons up and then shoot at it from the side. And there's an obvious thing that goes on there is when you're shooting from the front, there's lots of gaps between individual men. But if you could line all those men up from the side. <laughs> One line of bullets yep. will take out the first bloke, then the second, then the third, and on and on. And they wiped out effectively yep. the entire company with one machine yep. gun. When we think about battles like the neck at Gallipoli, the famous charge across the neck, once again, that's almost always depicted in films and documentaries as Turks in front firing on the Anzacs as they charged across. Uh, that absolutely wasn't the way it occurred because, firstly, the, the ground is so narrow, they wouldn't have been able to fit many machine guns in that narrow space. But secondly, the, the destructive fire came from the right flank. It came from the other Turkish positions along the line. So as the men charged across at the neck, the machine guns further to their right opened up and just sent an absolute stream yeah. of bullets flying sideways across there. And some of the accounts of the fourth wave who charged and basically knew they were doomed and just self-preservation was on their mind um, there's accounts of them actually going left over the cliff edge and sort of tumbling down over the cliff edge to just get out of that arc of fire, which was coming from the yeah. right flank. Just horrendous. I mean, it's one thing we always got to say here is we're talking about it quite clinically, but horrendous. These were horrendous weapons. Talk to me about the 1st of July, Pete. And, the, you know, we talk about how artillery was really significant in the First World War, which it was, but the yeah. machine guns played a big role in that massacre on the 1st of July. So talk to me a little bit about the, the German defensive position with machine guns. I will, but I'm just going to go off on a tangent. Because Please do. If I don't go off on it now, I'll forget. And it's just an interesting little story. I, I remember my father telling me that uh, his uncle, who taught him to swim, his party piece was showing people his three belly buttons. And that's because he had been at Gallipoli and he'd been hit twice uh, by a machine gun, both at each side of his stomach. So very luckily... It didn't do him any real uh, serious damage. Well, it wouldn't do any good, but it certainly didn't kill him anyway. Um, and so his party piece uh, used to be showing showing uh, all, all the kids his, his three belly buttons. Uh, and that was from Gallipoli, uh, from the machine guns at Gallipoli. Extraordinary. So back to your your question. What was your question? It was about the 1st of July. 1st of July, <laughs> yeah. Just about that. We know the significance of German machine guns in that, uh, on that yeah. day. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I mean, the significance was that it was still there, I suppose, and that's because they'd been taken underground. I mean, you have to imagine that the Germans built machine gun positions, but during uh, periods of heavy bombardment, you don't really want to be leaving your gun in the open. And as we know, prior to the Battle of the Somme, there was enormous heavy bombardment. Um, well, the Germans actually took their guns uh, underground. And when the bombardment eased, or even if it hasn't, once you know that your enemy's coming, you have to come to the surface. And so they they came to the surface and set their guns up and... Luckily, because of our tactics, luckily for the Germans, it meant that they had a a pause uh, because we stopped uh, bombarding the German front line as the whistles blew at 7.30. We climbed out of our trenches to attack. We stopped the bombardment and we moved it to the rear areas, to the communication trenches. And that gave the Germans free reign to bring their guns up from underground, to set them up and to open fire. So effectively, it became a race. Could we get across no man's land to the German machine guns? Because they are going to be a major, one of the major killers of that, of the 1st of July. Or will they get their guns uh, operational before we uh, we get there? And sadly, they do. Most of their guns are, are operational. I can under underplay the role of artillery, though. The artillery during the 1st of July, the German artillery was also problematic because they'd plotted where all of our our guns were, our support guns, all of, that's not a very good term, they'd plotted some of where uh, our support guns were, in other words the guns that were going to try and protect the infantry as they were attacking and in fact the counter-battery fire uh, made that completely uh, a non-starter, it broke down immediately, the gunners were driven away from their guns, these are the British gunners, by counter-battery, German counter-battery fire, so the artillery had a a big role to play but but those, uh, those machine guns on the 1st of July caused massive casualties to the attacking troops. I think one of the most horrific images, and I, and I remember the first time I, I read this, and I was probably about 13 or 14, about lines of men, and they described as looking like Mohammedans. In other words, they looked like they were Muslims praying, because these lines of men after the battle, they were found on no man's land, on their knees with their heads touching the floor, and they were lined out in the lines that they were attacking. And of course, we now know they'd been hit by enfilade fire as they were walking forward. In fact, they'd walked to their deaths by walking into the into the fire. And as each one fell, they were hit roughly in the stomach area. As each one fell, he, he knelt down and then rolled forward and, and because of the weight of his pack and with his forehead on the ground. And there were lines of men in very, very similar attitudes. And I think that's just a, a chilling, a chilling description of that attack on the 1st of July. It certainly is. Um, t- talk to me about a couple of um, anecdotes about German machine gunners. The first one is... I've read that in some instances on the first day of the Battle of the Somme, German machine gun crews were actually yelling for the British to go back with the uh, the huge amount of casualties that were being inflicted and the British kept coming and the second and third waves kept coming. Do you think that's likely that that actually occurred or is that apocryphal? I think it's probably apocryphal. You just don't know, do you? You don't know because individuals might be just so horrified. But I think it's apocryphal. I think that's highly, highly unlikely. One of the other stories, and I'm sure you were just about to say this, Matt, is the story of the machine gunners chained to their guns. And I remember the very first time I, I read that, and I thought, oh, those bastards, they chained, chained their gunners to their guns so they couldn't run away. And that's not it at all. It was the men themselves. It, it, it's it's them saying, look, we're not scared. We're not worried about what's going to happen. We will f- we're going to fight our guns to the end. And they chained themselves to their guns and threw away the keys. And it was to show their mates how tough they were, effectively. You know, we're not running away. We don't care what happens. We're staying here with our guns to the end. Now, again, whether that's apocryphal or not, I don't know. But uh, I have read accounts of people who supposedly saw some of those gunners uh, uh, chained to their guns. 
It doesn't. It doesn't quite stand up to me. And so the idea that, for example, the Germans would chain their would force their machine gunners to chain themselves the guns yeah, doesn't no, quite stand up in some ways no. as well because a machine gunner no. could still surrender if he did. <laughs> like he would still be yeah, able to yeah, surrender. Yeah. It would. I just have to and, drag my gun with me. <laughs> and if he thought he was so weak that he was going yeah. to run away, is yeah. it a display of strength? Anyway, it, it, none of it sort of makes sense to me. And another thing that I've read as well is the O eight fifteen in particular had a, a leather strap on it. That the machine gunners would use to drag the gun around, yeah, and that, that's true. Uh, that yeah. that um, that when they would find a dead machine gunner with a strap around him yeah, yeah. to the gun, that that could yeah. be a misunderstanding of yeah. what was actually, you know. And I don't think it's the men on the spot who would do that, but you know, they, no. they say, "Oh, we found this guy actually connected to his gun." And next thing in the rear area, it becomes a bigger story. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I, I suspect you're right. <laughs> well, it's those stories that they they seem like they could be true, but then on deeper yeah. thought. That they don't really stand up yeah. too much. You know, at the end of the day, what we should say is the German machine gunners were ferocious fighters, and many of them they were. chose to yeah. fight to the death and keep firing when they knew they were yeah. going to be overwhelmed, and they knew that the their enemy would not offer them quarter after they just cut down half a, half a platoon. It's it, it was considered a, a fairly unsporting to stay behind the safety of your machine gun and cut down a platoon, and then as soon as you realised the position was lost, to throw your hands up and beg for mercy. Uh, so the machine gunners were not well treated in those circumstances. Indeed, not. I, I, another of the stories that I've heard that, the, that if you were a machine gunner, you only lightly tacked your badges on. So if you were going to surrendered, you could pull your badge off quick. Take badge off. Um, yeah. Again, uh, stories. I think what's fascinating, and that's one of the things about history, isn't it? Uh, is that it changes as 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 work and uh, and I suppose. Uh, and research becomes more studious. A lot of the stories, certainly that I remember reading as a kid, and they were they were told in absolute. You know, this is fact. You know, we now know that they're they're not true. And I think it's one of the great things of history. It's forever evolving, and so you have to keep reading. It's my excuse for buying new books. I need to buy new books because it's the history is changing. Well, that's what I, that's what I tell my partner anyway. Fantastic. I I, I love that yeah. perspective as well. That the facts are yeah. locked in place. You know, this occurred a century ago, and it's yeah. not going to change. We're not. Not all of are going to sudden, all of a sudden going to discover that the Germans won the First World War. But what yeah. does change is our interpretation of those facts changes yeah. and we learn more about yeah. it and we get a better understanding. And the other thing I always take away from this, Pete, is that we're talking a large group of people. We're talking many millions of people participated in the war. They're all going to be different. Yeah. Some are going to be brave. Some are going to be scared. Some are going to win yeah. the Victoria Cross and some are going to run away. Some are going to be good, noble, honest people, and some are going to be criminals. When you have a, yeah. a huge army and a huge cross-section of society, they're, they're going to be as varied as people are when you see them on the street. And so yeah. one, it, it, it would only take one person to do one thing for that to enter enter folklore, but it doesn't mean every person was doing it on the battlefield. Uh, just before we finish up, Pete, one thing I wanted to do is, again, just to keep it... Oh, there's a dog barking outside my window. We've got some company. Um, keeping it uh, keeping it personal is you must have, in your many years of living on the battlefields, come across machine guns, had connections yourself with the history of machine guns. Have you got any anecdotes or any stories about machine guns and coming across them or that you want to recount? Well, yeah. Well, I think my favourite is when you're actually walking the battlefields, and it's the great joy of living here on the battlefields, when you're actually walking the battlefields, and you're just following a, a trench line, you know where it is, uh, you, or even if you don't, you've got the maps out and you've located it, you, you think you know where it is, and you're walking along there. And because I was it served in the military, you know, I use my soldier's eye occasionally, and I think, right, I know I'm in the, a German frontline trench here. I've been walking along, along it. Where would I put a machine gun? Oh, there's a little bulge, I know, just about here. So this is where I would probably place a machine gun if I was setting up the defences here. 
and if you're on the field at the right time and the ploughing's right and the weather's being kind, you've had a bit of rain and a bit of cold, it washes things off and things stand out. And you can literally look down and where you would like to think that the Germans would have placed the machine gun, there are fired rounds everywhere. Uh, it's just extraordinary. You'd think after a hundred years that these things would have been moved by the ploughing, but the ploughing basically turns it over that way. It turns the, 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 the soil over that way. It turns it back that way. And things don't really go anywhere. And so you get these piles of fired rounds. And it's just extraordinary. It's just, uh, and it gives you that very strange feeling. I can't describe it unless you actually do it and stand there. It's almost hairs on the back of your neck moment where you're thinking, oh gosh, you know, this really, really was where it took place. And this is where the gun was firing from. And obviously for anyone, every one of those empty cases, there's a, there's a potential casualty. So it's a very moving experience when you actually come across one of those locations. Moving on to a second thing is, of course, we very often find parts of the weaponry. Um, a friend uh, of mine that he's been coming here for 10 years or more, uh, he, he came back one day after walking the fields, he came back with a Lewis gun. Now, sadly, these things cannot cross international borders, even though it's a relic. It's, uh, it's a rusty lump of steel, but you just know exactly what it is. And so he had to leave it with me. Oh, I was so upset. Anyway, uh, I put it into my, into my barn, cleaned it up, and it was in my barn for years. And then uh, the... Uh, the Teepval Centre, uh, by the monument on the Teepval Ridge, were asking for relics for a, a new display, a permanent display they were putting in. So I had a quick word with this uh, guy. I rang him up and I said, look, it's stuck in my barn here. And yeah, the few people that come to stay at the B&B, they, they can have a, a look at it. But I said, wouldn't it be great if it was there? And he said, I agree in, uh, entirely, Pete. So if you want to go and see that Lewis gun, it's under the floor. You walk above it on the glass floor and you can look down and see that Lewis gun now beneath the floor. So yeah, bits do turn up. Uh, I also find the stands occasionally and spare barrels because all machine guns uh, normally they carried spare barrels for changing the barrels and so those turn up as well in the fields as well so yes bits and bobs uh, are, are, are still here in the fields absolutely extraordinary pete my <clears throat> my connection with machine guns is actually what probably got me so involved in the battlefields in the first place is that my father grew up uh, in a little town called mallee plains a little farming community outside west wyalong in new south wales and his father had served in the Second World War and was therefore the president of the local sub-branch of the RSL. And Mallee Plains only had a couple of things there, a tennis court and a few bits and pieces. But one thing it had, like all these little communities, was a memorial hall from the First World War. And Dad said when he was a little boy, they used to go in there and in the hall was a piano, the Roll of Honour listing all the men that had been killed from the district, and on the wall, this old German machine gun that had been captured during the First World War. And one day when he was quite young, he and his dad went down just to check on the hall. The hall was getting a bit old and starting to fall down a bit. And someone had prized the door open and stolen the piano. And so his dad decided <laughs> that if, uh, if, uh, the, if a piano could be stolen, it probably wasn't a good thing to have a machine gun on the wall. And so they took the machine gun home to their farm. And so my dad grew up playing cowboys and Indians behind hay bales with this captured First World War German machine gun. And then when his father died in the 1970s and they sold the farm, the gun disappeared. Well, fast forward 20 years to me being a late teen in the 1990s and very interested in the First World War, never having been to the battlefields, but getting a bit obsessed with it. And so I said, we've got to find this machine gun. It must be somewhere. And so through going to West Wyalong and asking a lot of people in the district, actually, it, was, it wasn't even that complicated. The first, he rang the next door neighbor's farm. And the first thing the bloke said was the old, uh, the old wool shed fell down last week. And I went out to, uh, to pull it all down and there was the machine gun propped up against the wall. And so we actually recovered that machine gun, and uh, now it's it's in safe storage. Now it's not uh, it's obviously not sitting around in my lounge room or anything. It's locked up in a vault. Um, but um, it uh, yeah, it was a German 
0815 captured at Mons and Quentin on the 31st of August 1918 by the 20th Battalion and sent home as a war trophy. So it's got a bullet dint. It's got a bullet dint in the water jacket, and it's got a brass plaque tapped out by hand, um, detailing how it was captured on that first day of the Battle of Mons and Quentin. So I just wonder about the number of men that machine gun killed and the machine gunners that were killed behind it before the Aussies took it over. Obviously, they're not going to go to the trouble of putting a plaque on a thing that they just picked up on the side of the road. So obviously, the 20th Battalion earned that trophy at some cost and then yeah. uh, kept it as a war trophy for, you know, and now, uh, well, I don't get to see it very often because, as I said, it's now locked up in a vault. I can't get yeah. to it uh, with the Australian gun laws, but it's great to know that that's a connection with family history and it's all licensed and deactivated and we now own that gun, so it's a fantastic thing. Well, I've got one, an 0815 behind me. So I've got an 0815, exactly the same. It's uh, uh, battle-damaged, uh, shrapnel through the uh, the water jacket. Um, it's not locked up in the vault. It's, uh, it's just uh, standing up, propped up literally behind me, but there's no barrel. I've got no barrel, no working parts, so it, uh, there's, n- there's nothing that could do any damage there at all. But it's uh, exactly the same, taken off a battlefield at the time, and obviously it's been somewhere for 100 years. It was somewhere or 90 years before uh, I was lucky enough to, to have an opportunity to purchase it so yes I, i've got snow 815 as well quite handy for showing your clients when you know when you're describing describing the machine gun if you've actually got one <laughs> well pete it's been just brilliant thank you for your insights in this first of our special bonus episodes and we hope as a listener you've enjoyed listening to this we've certainly enjoyed bringing it to you and there'll be more of these episodes as we go along and of course more episodes of battle walks which we will uh, just be putting out every week and it's it's really exciting i'm looking forward to more interesting topics on these bonus episodes so if you have a thought about a, an area of, of history of battlefield history you'd like to know more about um drop us a line send us a, a tweet or send us a note on facebook and just let us know what you'd like to hear more about and we'll uh, we'll roll those out as we go but pete it's yeah, been be uh, it's been great thank you so much for uh, for your input as always no nope, pleasure, Matt. Very enjoyable. And we'll talk to you again soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you would like to support the show, there's a couple of ways you can do it. Firstly, you can become a member. For a small monthly fee, you can subscribe to the show and listen to every episode ad-free and also receive exclusive episodes directly from Pete and I. So see the link in the show notes to sign up at ACAST Plus and become a member of the show. Also, if you want to make a one-off contribution, you can now buy us a coffee. Visit buymeacoffee.com forward slash battlewalks and you can make a small contribution there. See you next week.